Hey, Chris. Hey, Tim. How's it going? Pretty good. How are you? Oh, all's good here in Philadelphia. We finally got winter now that it's March, so exciting. Keeping us on our finally. toes. Yeah. Did you, your first snow of the season, maybe? You've had it was sort of that, faux right? snow, but it was ugly the last couple days. Okay. Well, we had temperatures in the 80s. Lovely. So we're definitely not in the winter. <laughs> My kids went swimming last week. Uh, last week, over over an Airbnb. So that was that was good. Yeah, fun times. Come here, where where global warming is certainly not a thing, at all. <laughs> all right. Well, welcome everybody to Hall of Songs, the Veterans Committee episode from the years 1995 to 1998. We're going to pick some songs that we did not pick earlier in the podcast, and we're going to put them in our list. For nominees, and you can vote on them later. That's what we're going to do in this episode. Talk about 95 to 98. You've got mail. And off we go. Welcome, music lovers and loyal listeners to Hall of Songs, the podcast in which two men attempt to determine the greatest songs of all time. I'm Tim Malcolm. I am Chris Jones. I don't know what to say. I'm sort of in a in, a, in one of those places where it's like I'm gonna I'm gonna start with something maybe topical, maybe kitschy. Nothing's coming, Chris. Why don't you lead it off here? I can give a cricket <laughs> update. Last time you've heard us, we were England was in the middle of a test match with New Zealand. They did win that test match uh, in test match number two. England lost to New Zealand by one run. Uh, like the odds of that happening in test cricket are like zero. It was it was one of those like Baxter eating the wheel of cheese things where I wasn't so much, you know, wasn't so much mad as I was impressed. It was one of the best sporting events I've ever seen, Tim. It was really, really ridiculous. If you're not a test cricket fan, you should be. It was great. And my what team lost. What does that mean? Do they have more matches? What does it mean? No, they, they played two test matches in New Zealand. England won one, New Zealand won one. They shook hands and then they had a good time. That was it. It was a delight. It is is a test match essentially an exhibition? No, no. Test match is the top of cricket. It is the most important oh, thing that what? there is in cricket. Five days. They played uh, the first one. went all five days. England ended up closing it out, winning. They bowled out New Zealand. Uh, won by a healthy margin, 100 and some runs or something like that. And then the second one came down right to the end. England had uh, two two runs to win. And uh, Jimmy Anderson uh, 
uh, top 20. It wasn't to the wicket keeper. It was, I think, just to, to slip. Uh, but, I mean, it was unbelievable. Both, I mean, it was like both teams were just exhausted, and uh, it was a blast. Again, too much cricket talk on this podcast. Why did I open the floor? That's to you? what happens when you just—I don't know. That's what happens. I got no <laughs> idea why I do this sometimes. I mean, I could have gone with the Grateful Dead. This is the uh, uh, March first. Oh, the anniversary of the '69 shows they made on the Live Dead album. We actually talked about those on the podcast. Let's move on to the podcast Hall of Songs. You all know how this works. We nominate songs year after year after year after year. Every couple episodes, we decide to go revisit some of those years and pick some songs that we didn't nominate originally. It's the Veterans Committee. It's just me and Chris again. That's that's just, It's just us, whatever. So the object of this episode is we talk about four songs from the last four episodes or four years of Hall of Songs that we went through. We talk about them, we nominate them, and then in the second half of the episode, we just freestyle on some of the things that we wanted to talk about further from those years that are not going to be nominated for the Hall of Songs, but are things that maybe we like or just we wanted to expound on more or whatever. So that's what this episode is. Chris, before we get into the nominees themselves, 95 to 98, really interesting four years that we had with actually quite a few Hall of Songs inductees from that era. I think at this point we have... Do we have exactly 100 still? I think we're still at 100, right? We are at 100, yes. The last one to get in was Bittersweet Symphony by The Verve. Right, so that was number 100. So the years 1995 to 1998, here are the inductees that we have from that period of time. Bittersweet Symphony by The Verve, as you just said, that was one of them. Wanna Be by The Spice Girls. Mo Money, Mo Problems by Notorious B.I.G. featuring Puff Daddy and Mace. Hallelujah by Jeff Buckley. We had Criminal by Fiona Apple. Gangsta's Paradise by Coolio featuring LV. Killing Me Softly by Fuji's Wonderwall by Oasis. And You Ought to Know by Alanis Morissette. So good range of songs there. We're tackling alt-rock. We're talking. We're tackling Britpop, we're tackling rap, we're tackling uh, R&B. We got a little pop in there with the Spice Girls. Your thoughts on this area of music, this period of music? I guess overall, like who's the big winner here in these last four years? What are the things that we've kind of heard and, and, and sort of went through uh, the most here over these last four episodes? What are the things that sort of uh, sort of – live with you through these episodes. Well, I think you can sort of go back to the episode where we talked to Chris Malanfi when he was on here and he had, he said that, you know, the chart sort of pivoted from being more of a rock chart to being a rap chart. And I think you can kind of see the, uh, like sort of this with like this era sort of being the finished product of that, where it's like you said, there's this wide variety of songs that people enjoyed, but the ones that were more chart smashes with, I don't know. I mean, I'll put the Spice Girls in sort of in the like sort of pop, you know, like they sort of had an at least dancey pop. But really, the only song that has sort of no connection to that world that was a chart favorite was probably You Ought to Know. A lot of the other ones are ones that sort of were MTV favorites or were, you know, maybe topped out at like 15, you know, 20 on the charts. It was like we've sort of seen that come full circle where, you know, then when you're looking for the the rock music, it's a lot more kind of like 
like disparate where it's like there's not sort of one sound that's there so it is really an interesting uh you know i like the the like we said like sort of the tupacs the biggies of the world were really really the superstars by now yeah the sound of rap and hip-hop basically became the sound that everybody was trying to copy that sort of shifted from you know rock was going to be the sound that people were sort of taking after and then sometime around the mid 90s early 90s it started to happen and then into the mid 90s it really did become beats and 808s and break beats and things like that were really going to sort of lead the way and the artists who were going to do the best during that era were going to be the ones who were adopting more of that hip-hop sound so yeah i mean wanna be by the spice girls even sort of doesn't have a traditional rock foundation it doesn't have a traditional rock arrangement it sounds more of like a pop song through sort of an r&b hip-hop filter and we do have a election that did end you guys did the voting back in february we tabulated the votes we are going to give you the results of that election very soon on an upcoming episode of hall of songs but i will give you a little bit of a spoiler from that election is that we have a couple songs from 1998 at the top of the list. I'm not going to type whether they got in or not, but they're at the top of the list songs from 1998 and 98 is a, is a year in which almost completely, I think as we went through that list back in our 98 episode, those songs are very much driven by hip hop and very much driven by beats. I think we had maybe one sort of rock song in the 98 list. And that was, you get what you give by new radicals. But even that song has a really hip hop forward beat. Yeah, I mean that's definitely the most sort of rock rock song from the last list. But you're right. I mean it's like I don't remember exactly when we sort of had that discussion that it was like even the ones that I, it may have actually been in talking about Bittersweet Symphony where it was like even the ones that are these like Brit rock songs have to have that type of beat in order to be be like you know of the time. So. Uh, I mean, yeah, you couldn't sort of, it was really hard to just be like one or the other. You kind of had to sort of cross over worlds in order to be successful. We now have a hundred songs in the hall of songs. We are now getting into the veterans committee portion of the last four years, 95 to 98. We each picked two songs to come up with this. And we have four songs total that we're going to nominate. And then we're going to talk about some other things that we like. So let's waste no more time. I think we can get right into the nominees you ready, Chris? I'm ready. All right, I'll launch it off with our first nominee from the Veterans Committee. This is from 1995. It's Underworld with the British dance smash Born Slippy Nux. the knucks come from any idea no is it like knuckles is it like nunchucks is it <laughs> is it n-u-x-x is it like n-u crossing crossing a lot of different suggestions here <laughs> we should maybe ask underworld we should i'm sure we, they, ask, uh, we, we probably have their cell phone number someplace we should ask carl hyde and rick smith 
They're from Cardiff, Wales. He started a group influenced by craft work called Screen Gems back in the late 70s. With additional members, that group became the synth pop outfit Freer, which in 1983 released the album Doot Doot, the title track charting in the UK. They soon split that group up and started the funkier synth pop group Underworld, releasing two albums under that name and Underworld MK1. Another iteration, Underworld MK2, came next and was more techno driven. By now, Hyde and Smith were working with DJ Darren Emerson. By the mid-90s, the three were working more in the emerging acid house scene. They released a single in 95 called Born Slippy, and on the B-side, they placed Born Slippy Nux. It would later be used in the 1996 film about drug addiction, Train Spotting. Hyde wrote Born Slippy after a night drinking, attempting to show the choppy and ugly reality of alcoholism. He also did the vocals. I said acid house, like I'm from Chicago or something. What the hell is going on here? So this is, at the time, it was pretty well received in the UK press. Talked about as one of the more influential and inspiring dance songs of that moment. It was number two in the UK, number two in the UK dance charts. This to me is like, I mean, I think of techno and I think of trance and I think of all those sort of electronic dance music genres of this era as sort of very instrumental driven and very hard and very, if you're in it, you're in it. And if you don't get it, you probably will never get it. But this is kind of different from all of that. It's very different from your basic trance song. Yeah. I think that this came up when we were sort of calling down the list for our 1995 episode. And I think I kind of gave it a, you know, short shrift, at least in my own head. Uh, and I think part of it weirdly was because of the connection to train spotting. Uh, you know, this, like you said, it's played over the end credits. It's like, there was part of me that was thinking, oh, you know, people remember from train spotting, but that's it. And it starts off a little bit slow, but then you sort of get into it. And I really feel like this one has kind of this, like, it has legs to it. I, I've really been, you know, this was a fun one to, again, rediscover that way and to really feel like it's got like a lot more depth and a lot more feel to it than, than what I gave it credit uh, for when we were sort of calling down the list for 95. Compared to something like Firestarter, which was on our 96 list, uh, which again, to me, was a no-brainer to include on the list. And I said this on the episode, I just don't think it holds up all that well. Like, this to me is the opposite of that. I think this one sort of is going to have a longer longer legacy. And it's interesting because it wasn't written at all for the movie. You know, it had come out, you know, a year or so before the movie. And they picked up the track and, you know, wanted it for the movie and things like that. And it sort of took off from there. Uh, so, but, uh, it, that, that, like... You said that connection, I think, probably to me sort of caused it in my head to sort of give it like a little bit of a, a quick once over. It's really funny because we talked about this a lot early on in the podcast, especially in the 50s on some of the records that were B-sides and the DJ flipped it over and suddenly that became the hit. This is another instance of that where the B-side was not really thought of as anything more than a toss off. And here it is. It's this like big moment in dance music in the UK. Yeah, I mean, this it, it's funny. Uh, a lot of this comes back to me to tub thumping. I mean, you called it like the quintessential 90s song, and I think there's a good reason for that. And this like 
spiritually calls back a lot of that. Uh, like you said, there's like this sort of darkness to it in this, like we said about tub thumbing that it sort of manages to capture the sort of the night out, the hangover looking back. And I think it does so in a, you know, it's supposed to be kind of a positive way. This is like the dark side of that where it's, you know, it starts out, it's sort of supposed to be like this fun night out and it just sort of kind of goes off the rails. And I mean, it's a, it's a long song. It's like seven minutes and it, you can sort of feel this almost like, you know, slipping downhill spiraling downhill and it, it captures that sonically really well trance music right a lot of trance music is really instrumental driven and it's break beats and they're looped on over and over again you're just hearing the same beat but then you start to hear these layerings happening where you know there's another beat on top of a beat another beat on top of a beat and it builds tension and it gets to a point where it really is this full sound and then usually in trance there's this sort of slowdown period in the middle of the record where it kind of washes out and it gets a little moodier and then it builds back up at the end and this kind of flips it on its side this is in the beginning of the record you get that real smoothed out period it's Keyboard, atmospheric, a wash of sins, very emotive and really reflective of the lyrics. They match up really well because the lyrics are these very emotive lyrics about what it's like to be a drunk person at a bar. You're you're doing these drinks. You see a girl you start talking to this girl. She's a blonde. You're into her. And then as the song continues, as the tension grows, as the trance grows, it gets more scattered, right? It's like he's talking to the blonde, but now he's squatting and he's sort of pissed drunk now. And then he's talking about things to himself and he doesn't know what he's saying. And he's shouting lager, lager, lager. And then he's on the telephone. Just all these things are happening in these little snippets. And it really does, as you said, it perfectly captures what it's like to be totally off your ass. Apparently Hyde said it was a, it was a cry for help. And I think that's about right. You know, when you, when you, when you listen to this, if you've been in that position where you're like, I'm too drunk and I don't know if I'll ever like get over this kind of feeling. I don't know if I'll ever not be a drunk. Like, you know, that could resonate with you. Like that, that could really feel like a deep, deep feeling. And so I get it with that. I mean, it's very artistic, very resonant. It's really a beautiful piece of music, despite the fact that it's a club banger. It's a real banger. All right. Our second, of Veterans Committee nominee here. It's going to be familiar. It is the third nomination for now inductee, Notorious B.I.G. Hypnotize. Detroit players, Tim's for my hooligans in Brooklyn. That's Dead it. right, if the head right, Biggie there, and I. Papa been smooth since days of under rules. Never lose, never choose to. Bruce Cruz, who do something to us? Talk go through us. It's the way that it just comes in. That that bass and the I mean the sample. It's the way the sample hits with the bass. It booms at you real quick. It's the most Biggie song there is. It's and it's also one of the more momentous and, and memorable rap record moments of all time. You can just picture him like kicking down your door and coming in. 
I love it. <laughs> I guess we we don't have to go do too much uh, background of this one only because we covered it in 1997. This is not only you know B.I.G. but it's from the exact same album as Mo Money Bo Problems now inducted. But uh, I would say this is like my one A to Mo Money Mo Problems being one B from that. And I, we said at the end of that episode we could have very easily nominated two songs, and this was the second one. And that to me, it's like that entrance. It's the pulsating beat, but most of all, it's got biggie in every verse so much biggie from start to finish that's the most biggie record and the sample too is so biggie that like it's the one time where puff really knocked it out of the park and he didn't have to do anything else to it it's a perfect sample the sample of course is rise which is a 1979 number one hit from herb alpert and our records you know herb alpert great great player that is a great sample because it's not the main melody from rise that you might recognize first and foremost. Instead, it's that little sort of passage in the bridge where there's a breakdown puff takes that part and he makes that the whole song just loops that over and over again. And then there's these little moments within that sample. There's this little strained guitar. That's kind of out in the, out in the ether. And there's also, I don't know if it's a synth, or if it's reverb at the end, but at the end of that last beat, you hear that woo, like those things together, along with the beat, how meaty and how bouncy it is and how sort of raw it is, all that together adds up to the most biggie sample and it's the most biggie sound. And then on top of that, you have Biggie just being him, right? This is the most like he's humorous, he's boasting, he's being a little real at times. All that is packed into this lyric to make the most like if you wanted to put Notorious B.I.G. on a record, say this is the record you have to listen to. This is it. Yeah. And I mean, it's like I mean, you mentioned the 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 rise sample, but it also has the hook, which is taken originally from uh, Lady Da Lady uh, by Slick Rick. But then also Snoop Dogg, you know, borrowed that as well. And it's kind of this like interesting homage to history, playing homage to history when you are sort of paying homage to both Snoop Dogg and Slick Rick, you sort of are putting yourself in line and sort of making a statement that says, I belong with, uh, you know, not just sort of these more recent hip hop titans, but sort of this longer legacy. And I think that is, you know, certainly a knowing statement by Biggie and one that is, is very worthy. It's like he, you know, he is sonically making a statement that he is like, you know, big, that he is one of the best. Uh-huh. Can't you see? Uh-huh. Sometimes your words just hypnotize me uh-huh. And I just love your flashy ways uh-huh. Guess that's why they're broken, you're so uh-huh. I can feel you with real millionaire shit That's Cargo, my Cargo 160, swiftly Wreck it by your new one Your crew run, run, run Your crew run, run I know you sick of this name brand It flows, girl, say he's sweet like Do you have a favorite line from Hypnotize? Mine is Leave your ass leaking like rapper demos <laughs> I don't know. I probably have a different one every time I listen to it. Although most of them, I'm probably not allowed to say. So, <laughs> I mean, I, I just, just said I love one of the beginning worst. of the I second. said one of the worst. <laughs> I love the the just the beginning of the second verse when he's like when he's just sort of listing off like shouting the cities, the the cities and the the couture that is associated with all of the cities. Let's put it that way. <laughs> I put DKNY on the host from NY, <laughs> Miami DC prefer Versace, all Philly hoes rock with Machino, every cutie with a Woody want a Gucci. That's it. Yeah. Okay. There you go. That's I good. always get that mixed up because there's a couple words in there that rhyme with Uji that I don't want to say. So, anyways, that's great. It's fan. It's phenomenal. <laughs> Our third nominee for the Veterans Committee from '95 to '98. This is from 1997. 
Let's talk about Radiohead again. The OK Computer album. This is an incredible album. One of the greatest albums ever recorded, written, all that stuff. There are a number of really nominating quality songs on this album, but I had to go with Letdown. I kind of fought for a while between this and Karma Police, but to me, Letdown is the ultimate Radiohead song. And I really do believe, and I've said this on a couple occasions in the past, this is one of the most beautiful songs that, have, that has ever been written. Yeah, you know, I thought about trying to come up with reasons why I would have done this or that, but it's really a great call, and this is such a great song. Uh, I mean, you're talking about that sort of the, how beautiful it is. This is kind of neither here nor there, but I think it's sort of, you know, it's this is the 20th anniversary of the Postal Service's only album, Get Up, and I've been listening to that a ton lately because of that. And listening to this, it's like the hook from this just takes me immediately to such great heights from uh, postal service that from that okay, album. And it's yeah. really, I think it's actually probably more the iron and wine cover of such great heights that kind of has that sort of, there's definitely so like a very similar chord progression that manages to perfectly capture this kind of like melancholia with like maybe a, a tint of optimism. I don't know what it is. It's sort of tugging at your heartstrings. And I think that's, it is the, these others, the Postal Service and Iron Wine were able to sort of, you know, piggyback on some of the beauty that Radio had had here. So Letdown was supposed to be the lead single for OK Computer, but that got nixed in favor of Paranoid Android. This then became a promotional single. This did chart though in the US, number 29 on the modern rock chart. So it actually got there despite very little play obviously, and, and not being in too many stores and things like that. I think of Computer Love by Kraftwerk when I hear this because Tom York talks about how this song is all about what it's like to be a person in society and to sort of move around, talking to people, being around people, and the sense that people's emotions, what they're trying to get out there, what they're trying to express is fake. Everybody's emotions are fake and everything seems fake. And this whole life that we're living, where we're going from place to place, we're not really getting to know each other. We're not really, we're not really making time to understand each other through the small things, through the nuance. Instead, we're just living these very plastic, fake lives. Man, I mean, you think computer love and how that sort of really predicted where we are as a society today. This is right there with that in how we're talking about like social media and getting away from everybody and not being face to face with people working remotely and things like that and how our lives have been compacted into these very like small things, these small bubbles. And we have these devices that we just kind of communicate through. And it's just not the same as being around somebody all the time. So that really resonates with me, but also it's just a gorgeous, gorgeous arrangement. All the arpeggiated guitars, the wash of keyboards and how it really builds that tension builds so beautifully first into that bridge and then it kind of smooths out and comes back up at the end and i mean i could talk about 
the dueling harmonies forever and how Tom York's lyrics come together at, the, at that big moment. It's just gorgeous. I mean that's right, and I think it's this. Uh, I I I don't know how subtle it is. It's probably not that subtle. I think this is their homage to like the '60s jangle pop here. And what I hear a lot of times in this is the Kinks, and I, it's like sort of this evolution of the Kinks and the way that it sounds and the way that they use sort of the right like this this sort of pop hook with this little sort of these chimes almost in the background. And I think that adds to what you're talking about with the lyrical content. I mean, you know, York had this tale of he came up with the idea. He was at a club and he had this like vision that what happened if the floor completely fell out and everybody was just left holding on to like bottles that they were drinking that were somehow chained to the ceiling, probably an apocryphal story, but it was like, he liked that imagery and it, and it works. And there's something to me that's like, like the kinks got that too, right? The kinks were sort of writing about this kind of like these weird sort of like the social threads and sometimes feeling comfortable and sometimes not, but this is kind of the evolution of that. It's taken to this sort of late nineties extreme where it's not so much feeling uncomfortable about your place in society. It's like the floor has completely fallen out of society and all you're left is sort of holding onto a thread. And so is everybody else. And it really is that does manage to sort of convey that in this lovely sounding song. You mentioned Jangle Pop and the Kinks. The other big influence that was at least cited by Radiohead, Ed O'Brien actually cites that the wall of sound is a real inspiration for this. They were going for a wall of sound sort of treatment with those arpeggiated guitars and how the tension builds throughout. And I think of the wall of sound more as like these big instrumental phrases that sort of combine with one another to create this enormous gargantuan sort of sound. Whereas this is all really it's broken down fragments and segments and notes. It's, it doesn't really feel like a lot of these big phrases. It doesn't sound like all these big sweeping melodies are converging. Instead, it's like just little blips of sound and things that are just kind of happening. But then when they co- combine, it really does create this beautiful wave of noise. And, and, and I get lost in every time. I mean, it, like to me, this rivals God only knows this is right up there with it. I, I remember waxing poetic about God only knows way back in our 65 episode. That is a hall of songs inductee, by the way, it really does have that feeling of a song that really sums up something deep in your heart, something deep in your soul that is hard to express in any other way. They just did it so perfectly and the music matches it what they were going for on the recording matches the lyrical content perfectly. There are a few songs I think that are as perfect as this, and that's kind of where I'm going to land on it. All right, we're going to shift gears just a little bit. This one might surprise some people. Our fourth nominee from this Veterans Committee episode is Flagpole Sitta by Harvey Danger from late 1997.
Did you hear why they called it? Why they go with the A? <laughs> why, why do they go with the A? They liked some other things, and it's sort of a tribute to some of their favorite songs and albums. They gave a specific shout out to Straight Out of Compton, and thought that that was what they should go with. <laughs> I mean, I remember loving this song back in the late 90s when it was popular and thinking this is a very enjoyable track why is this a hall of song nominee before we get into the bio for harvey danger why is this a hall of songs nominee well it's funny i uh, i completely i knew of this song i guess in 97 when it came out this song came back uh to me for other reasons that we'll talk about in a second uh several years later but is I think this is up there with tub thumping as far as like that quintessential 90s song. It sort of captures all of the, well, it captures a lot of the warts of this late 90s uh, sort of rock sound anyway. There's stuff that's missing, but it's got that sort of punk. It has these like sarcastic, sardonic lyrics, and it's commenting on both like music in general and itself all at the same time, which I love. All right, well, the history of Harvey Danger, before we continue to debate the song, Aaron Huffman, Jeff Lynn were students at the University of Washington. Not that Jeff Lynn. This guy spells his name L-I-N, by the way. They're my kind of guys. They worked at a student newspaper. They preferred to be arts journalists, and they decided to start a band, naming it after some words graffitied on the wall of their newspaper office. And I could totally relate to that, because as, as a college student, I was a journalist who preferred arts and worked and kind of lived in a newspaper office with a whole lot of shit on the walls. And we used to read it out all the time. And I would write some stuff on the walls too. That place is now, I think, burned down probably. It was not long for the world after we got out of there. They brought in friend Sean Nelson and played early shows with nothing more than buckets and pickle jars, but they got good and made enough money to make a demo tape. After college, they continued to play around the Seattle area and made another demo, which got to small label head who funded their first LP, Called Where Have All the Merrymakers Gone? It came out in July of 97 and included Flagpole Sitta. That song about the absurdity of the new mainstream alt-rock scene would find its way onto Seattle radio and become the hottest song in the city. Harvey Dangerous Huffman on bass, Lynn on guitar and keys, Nelson on vocals and keys, and Evan Salt on drums. Pretty good hit. Number three on the alternative airplay chart in the U.S. Did crack the top 60 in the uk number 57 man i i i just remember loving this song when i was a lot younger and giggling at the lyrics at the top about going up the flagpole and looking in the window at the girl and that kind of thing but to me this almost reads like an anti-green day song <laughs> right doesn't it see i well i kind of think it's an anti rolling stonification of grunge song which may be saying largely the same thing it is sort of that snarkiness about just the music scene in general and how cool people think that they were slash are i mean what there's the line about i want to pierce my tongue it doesn't hurt it feels fine the trivial sublime it's like there's definitely a lot going on here that is kind of like fake obliviousness or fake sort of uh fake being able to just sort of withstand everything Right, right. I mean, I want to publish zines and rage against machines, right? Like right there is kind of the crux of it. But I, I hear like a Dookie lyric. That first verse is basically any song from Dookie about going up the flagpole. The second verse seems to comment on fans of pop punk. The whole crazy verse, uh, paranoid, a paranoid, everybody's coming to get me. That sounds like Basket Case, you know? Like it just, it just kind of feels like 
they're doing Green Day, but also mocking Green Day in this really clever way. But it's a killer hook. I, this is a great hook. And it's kind of in that middle place between the grunge and sort of harder rock of the early 90s, you know, grunge being a more of a umbrella term, of course, and what you'd get into in the late 90s with the sunnier stuff like the third eye blinds and stuff like that. This is kind of in the middle of that. It's 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 kind of Green Day-ish in that pop punk sense, but it still has sort of a foot in the 70s, especially uh, in that hook. That sounds kind of 70s. So I think there's a lot of 90s kind of threaded into this record. So I can understand what you're saying about how this is so quintessential. Yeah, I mean, uh, it's funny, Rob Sheffield, who we've now come across occasionally, because he's written a lot of these like top, whatever, top 50 songs of any given year in the 90s. Uh, and he hasn't done every year. It's just like he sort of does these things here and there. Uh, he did uh, his top songs of 1998, and he had this at number one, because I think he overlooked the fact that it came out in the UK in 1997. But it uh, goes to show that it does have this sort of legs. But I, I alluded to this earlier, but in the UK, this was this song was used as the theme song for Peep Show which is an absolutely ridiculous, uh, sarcastic, sardonic, dry, cringeworthy television show that aired for 10 years. I think when it went off the air, it was the longest running uh, British sitcom, that, that at least at the time, and that had been in a long time. And it was actually one of... Uh, uh, Jesse Armstrong's first, uh, you know, major productions. He's now like more known in the states for his contributions to Veep and, of course, Succession. But uh, it's it's like you can't, I can't hear the chorus and not picture the credits to the to that show. And if you haven't seen the show, anyone, I first recommend watching it. But I will also say that the song just fits it perfectly. So if you like this song, you will quite likely be a fan of Pete. Well, those are our nominees from the Veterans Committee, 1995 to 1998. They will go on to the ballot. Those songs are One More Time, Born Not One Slippy. More Time. We nominated that several decades, several episodes ago. Okay. Not one. We didn't nominate One Oh, no, we didn't. We did the other one. Yeah. Around Sorry, the world. We should have nominated One Way. <laughs> one, one More Time isn't even one yet more night. coming. What? Oh, that's right. What? One More Time is like 2001, Chris. There we go. I've broken you out of your funk now because you're mad at me. It's good. You're getting fired oh, up. And that's really good <laughs> considering where we're about to go. Those songs that will be nominated for the Hall of Songs are Born Slippy, Nux by Underworld, Hypnotized by the Notorious B.I.G., Letdown by Radiohead, and Flagpole Sitta by Harvey Danger. Those songs will go on the ballot at hallofsongs.com. That will happen after our 1999 episode. So we put the we put the VC picks on the ballot after the episode after. So it's a weird thing, you know, whatever. But the 99 episode is scheduled to come out on March 19th. Is that where we're going with that? I think March 19th is the 99 episode. So when that episode comes out, hallsongs.com, which is where the ballot will be, will be unveiled. And those songs will be part of that ballot. So we'll see what happens with that ballot and those four songs when they get there. Okay. So before we head into our personal picks from 95 to 98, Chris talk about 
where to find our podcast, and for those of you who are listening, how to help us out. All right. Well, if you're listening, you probably know how to find our podcast at least one place, but tell your friends because they can find us any place where podcasts are to be found, any of the apps, Google, Amazon, any of that fun stuff. Uh, we like it if you hit us up at the Amazon podcast app and rate us, review us. That does help other people find us. Go to holosongs.com. That's where you can do the voting. You can find back episodes there. You can find write-ups on the songs that have gotten in. You can just go take a look at what we nominated in past episodes. There's a lot there on the website. That's holosongs.com. You can email us at hallofsongspod, hallofsongspod at gmail.com. And you can find us on all the socials at Hall of Songs. Uh, uh, we are active somewhat on uh, Twitter. We do have a pretty active Facebook page, not so much on Instagram, but we're still there. And you can send us messages and things like that. And in all those, just go look for Hall of Songs and you will find us. Now it's time to move into the second half of our episode. We should tell people what we do real quick here below the line, as we like to call it. You know, this, so we're going to get into a couple of things that are not going to be on the ballot, but things we just want to talk about, right? Yeah, that's what we're doing. <laughs> so you're leading off, Chris? I'm leading off, Tim. It is that time. It is the time on Hall of Songs when we talk about fish. Oh, ready, joy. Tim? No. So we're going I'm with not ready. Harry Hood. This is Fish, Harry Hood, recorded live October 23rd, 1994 in Gainesville, Florida. This was released on... A live one. The epic, epic live album that came out on June 27th, 1995. You like Harry Hood, Tim? I listened to it a couple times. I kind of get it, but I don't really like it. I'll be honest with you. I don't. I tried. It's kinder than I thought. I really tried. I really tried. And I'll get more into it, but why don't you talk about fish? Because you look, you're the, you're the fish fan. You, you, you exude fishness from the very (laughs) being talk about fish for a couple minutes, not more than five we got a tight ship to run. No, I'll be I'll be anti fish here and be really short. We don't need to do the bio. Uh, you guys can go look up fish if you don't know them. They're a Vermont band. There's four guys: Trey, Paige, John Fishman, and Mike Gordon. Uh, they're good. They are in the middle of their 40th anniversary tour. Uh, this past weekend was the kickoff of their 2023 tour, which is their 40th anniversary. They played some shows in Mexico. They actually opened up the Mexico run with Harry Hood because it is one of their uh, sort of longtime quintessential songs. I, I, they first played this song, I think, in 1984, 1985. In lieu of doing the bio, I want to say a quick thing about this album, a live one. Talked about the Grateful Dead, Live Dead, Almond Brothers, Live at Fillmore East. Uh, this to me might be the most successful live album of all time. And that's because they didn't just sort of sit down and record a show. You know, they didn't do that Jimmy Buffett thing where they just go record two shows back to back and then take the best. They like went back through several hundred shows, pulled out the best uh, performances. And they actually went onto message boards, went to fans and said, what do we need to include on this? And then sort of pieced together a bunch of great, great performances into what is like, it's a little over two hours, I think. So it's not quite the length of a full show. 
but kind of mimics a show. It sort of has like the ups and downs of a show. And I remember playing this for friends in late 1995 and people who would hear, oh yeah, I heard they're a good live band would hear this and be like, okay, now I need to go see fish because they kind of got it. Cause it was like, they really do do a great job on this album of capturing the live experience and the experience of seeing fish. And, you know, we have to talk about them in this period because really 95 through 98 is when fish went from being this like Vermont band that I saw playing in 1993 to about, I don't know, 1800 people to a band that was playing arenas by the end of 1998. I mean, they had blown up to that point and they took over the mantle of the Grateful Dead from this sort of jam band scene. And this album does sort of epitomize it and does get that across. And I just know it was like, it did exactly what they wanted it to do. It was like, this is what we sound like. But what makes them good? Is my question. <laughs> well, what makes anybody good? I mean, if I were trying to sell somebody like you on fish, I would say that they appreciate a lot of the music that had come before them. They appreciate uh, like sort of classic rock music. They appreciate some elements of classical and jazz music. They appreciate elements of funk. And uh, they put things together and they're all really good musicians. They have this mixture of improvisational, almost like jazz music and uh, music that is a lot more composed and sort of put together. And Hood, to me, is the perfect example of that. I think Harry Hood is the quintessential fish song, largely because of sort of the history that it has. It's not a pure jam vehicle like something like Tweezer. It's not as composed even as something like You Enjoy Myself. It is a composed piece that lets them sort of play off each other. And to me, if I was going to play something, just a piece, to say this is why I think fish is good, it would be the moment the part in this where it starts, it's right around six minutes where they get out of the thank you, Mr. <laughs> Minor part. And it feels like the song is going to go into this like really quiet outro and it gets really quiet. And then there's this beautiful sort of guitar and it slowly, slowly builds up. And then at the 10 minute mark, the drums, the piano, the guitar all kick in and they just sort of build towards the huge outro when they just say, you can feel good about hood. And after the 15 minutes of the song, you it's like you feel like you've gone on a journey. And like I listen to this and I immediately just want to start it back over again because it is that fulfilling. This is what I'm talking – like I was trying so hard. The absurdity of all of this is so – like you got to wait until the six-minute mark when it really gets good. Like, what, what the, the first six minutes are really good. It just gets oh, even better at the six-minute mark. Come on. So like look, 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 look. My After listening like two times to this, I was like, all right, I can understand that opening, the opening melody that passages they're doing for like 30 seconds is, is interesting. It's good. I like it. I want them to expand on that. They really don't. And then you get into that final Dakota there in the final nine minutes or whatever the hell it is. And yeah, I, there is a sense of like, oh, this is going somewhere. And, I, and, I, and I'm with it. I'm going with it. I'm there. Yeah. But they don't really build upon it at all. Like I... Like, it actually sounds a lot like Lion R. Grace by Dave Matthews Band, like the same sort of outro piece that is in that song. It sounds very similar, but he actually goes somewhere in Lion R. Graves. They don't go anywhere here. They just kind of like, it goes up and then it stops and it's over. And it's like, what? 
So, yeah, well, so, I, there there is sort of an abrupt ending when they do the the outro. You can feel good about Hood, but I feel like it is that's I I mean, taking fish for what it is, that that's not quite the case. That there is this sort of slow build up, and then there is really like this five minute of just kick ass guitar where Paige is coming in on the keys, and it is like they're playing off each other, and they build up to that. You can feel good about Hood, and then it just kind of like it like ends and at the end it's like you feel like you need a breather because it has but been like this like intense like really like eight I, I nine really minutes don't. of build-up i don't feel that way and is it really kick-ass i didn't feel anything during that guitar work I, and and like the, the more absurdity is like the lyrics are it, something about the lights out in the hood like 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 so okay the lights out harry whatever um where do you go where the light when the lights go out or whatever it is it's it's about it's about it's about so hood, okay, hood. I went to school in Boston. I know what hood is. Hood is the biggest dairy manufacturer in New England, right? I, I've drank hood milk. I have had hood ice cream. I've had hood products. They're everywhere. The song is about the mascot for hood because they lived in a house across the street from a manufacturing facility where you'd see the mascot on the big towers. That's The song is about a milk mascot. It's I about think a milk mascot. And the lyric, and the lyric is about... Where do you go when the lights go out? So like in the fridge, you know, where, where, what happens when the lights go out? When the fridge closes, what? And then there's another lyric about Mr. Minor, who is the landlord of the house the, or the, the previous tenant of the house. And they used to get like calls about him being late on bill payments and that would interrupt their playing. And like, who cares? I don't need to like go read fish history to like unscramble these lyrics. And there's like two lyrics in the whole song and they're nothing. And they don't even sing them on key. They're harmonizing, but in the worst way. I don't... It's like an elaborate joke, Chris. I think this band was an elaborate joke put on this earth to just piss me off. There's no other explanation for Fish. So let me say three things. I'll try to be as quickly as possible. First of all, with respect to the lyrical inspiration for the song, I think there was acid involved. So you may be missing... Of course. All right. Number two, I was actually had in my notes that I really, really like fish, but if I were to find out like five years from now that they were actually just an elaborate joke that had been played on me for like the last like 45 years, I would probably believe it. But mm-hmm. finally, let me say that the one thing that I will say, my, if you are a fish fan, mute this. I am almost entirely with you on the lyrics. And I, it's like, to me, it's like they are much more of sort of a jazz band. They're in their later years, they've gotten to the point where I think they're writing better and better songs. But I have almost always come down sort of on the side of the Grateful Dead versus Fish when it comes to the jam bands. A lot of that is just the fact that I think the Grateful Dead start with better songs. They start with song, and it's like even some of the Grateful Dead songs that are about these sort of like, you know, Western things. It's like they've created this sort of old weird America. I am with you. You could have this exact song without lyrics, and I don't think it would suffer. So I'm not going to completely push back on the lyrics piece of this. And there are many songs from this era, Fish especially, that uh you know the lyrics are an afterthought let's put it that way you've heard it here first folks chris hates fish as well <laughs> touche now All let's right, get well, into a band i really like well i mean so here's the thing here's the thing <laughs> so you got your fish thing which you talk about incessantly i don't talk about this artist really much at all especially anymore because i'm not really a fan anymore but if you want to compare Fish and I would say more Jimmy Buffett to an artist from like from from my part of the world and sort of ha- like if there was ever an artist that would sort of 
be that sort of a group for me. Ladies and gentlemen, 311. So we're playing Down right now. This is Down from their self-titled album from 1995, their third LP, also called the Blue Album for some people, not that Blue Album. Let me do the 311 story real quick. I'll do this as quick as possible. Formed in Omaha, Nebraska, late 80s, moved to LA around 90, somewhere in the early 90s. Debut album was 93's poorly titled music, then came Grassroots in 94. 95 was a self-titled album, which I just talked about. This had uh, Down on it, All Mixed Up is on it, Don't Stay Home is on it. Pretty good modern rock hits. Down was a number one modern rock song in the U.S. 97 after this brought Transistor. 98 gave the people their first live album. Nick Hexum on vocals and guitar. Doug S.A. Martinez on vocals and turntables. Tim Mahoney on bass. Aaron Peanut Wills on bass, just called Peanut. Chad Sexton on drums. Let me tell you a couple things about 311, Chris. First, could you please spell peanut for the listeners? It's P-N-U-T. Thank you. Okay. It has been 30 years since 311's debut album. They have 13 albums over that period. The last album that I heard all the way through was 2003's Evolver, so I haven't really heard much of their new stuff. 311 plays a big live show every year on March 11th, or 311 Day which is actually very soon. So happy 311 day to everybody. They do a Caribbean <laughs> cruise every, a Caribbean cruise every year. They sponsored a NASCAR stock car for a bunch of years. There are multiple 311 beers out in the wild. The latest is called come original pale ale after their really big hit 2000 song come original in a collaboration with El Segundo brewing of LA. El Segundo also has a series of beers with stone cold, Steve Austin which are actually very good. Their IPA is actually very good. There's also a 311 cannabis vape pen. Can you believe it? Can you believe it, Chris? I can believe it. Yes, I can. So what do you think about 311? I mean, this is the problem is I would like to, I have this CD. I still own the CD. <laughs> I listen to this all the time when it came out. I mean, who are you kidding? When this came out, it was like, these guys are great. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I'm not going to go, you know, you could, like, you could try to, you can rip fish all that, but it's like, you turn over to me on 311, like, yep, I hear that. No, I mean, I would just say that 311 is thought of by many as this, oh, they're like fake reggae, fake rap, white boys rocking out in this really lame kind of limp way. Yes, in some ways they have that rap. Their lyrics are 70% of the time very ridiculous and you know maybe they haven't grown out of a 15 year old slang book but i'll tell you something when i was in my teenage years 311 was it for me like they rocked hard they had some of the rap and some of the funk and some of the reggae that i was i mean i really wasn't into reggae but like that was palatable for me the rap and the funk part i got into a lot because 
I wasn't necessarily, I didn't have the rap cred at the time, right? Like I wasn't going to middle school, like talking about Biggie and talking about Tupac and stuff. Uh, but 311 I could talk about. So they were my band. They were my group. And I went to a lot of 311 concerts. And this album was the eh, kind of the peak of my 311 fandom. I will tell you that 311's Transistor album from 1997 is an underrated classic album. Underrated classic. It's like 22 songs. It's a sprawling mess of an album where they try a lot of different things, but it's where their sound really crystallizes. It's really good. <laughs> it's very melodic. I appreciate it. And you, made fun of Harry, and you made fun of Harry Hood for being 15 minutes long. I mean, the sound really crystallizes between that like seven and 12 minute mark. And this one, it like it works between songs like 15 and 21, 22. It starts to go downhill. Like Actually, that. between like <laughs> songs like 12 and 19 is this like really great suite of songs that they put. To, I mean, just as long as Harry Hood, damn it. <laughs> But there's the, more there's more musical like <laughs> genius in in those songs in in 311's Transistor than in one minute of Harry Hood. Oh, anyway. see that's just not true. There I mean <laughs> I'll, I'll give but all right. So I, I we mentioned it on the show, right? But I was thinking about the Judgment Night soundtrack and talking about this. Like <laughs> we probably could have done an entire episode just on the Judgment Night soundtrack cuz Beyond Yacht Rock already did that. Oh, I did. I, oh, that's right. I forgot they did that. That was good because like that to me it's hard to overstate like the i the goal with which people were trying to find a way to combine this sort of hard rock metal something with rap right there was like even like Lollapalooza there were they would bring in the rap artist there was the Judgment Night soundtrack there was like all these sort of like there was Ice T's band right that would like yeah. it was like this whole thing and it's like this was so much of the time and really did i mean you're right like down does really have like a killer hook and there's a couple other good songs on this album on the blue album that are really like that they sort of got that in that it that it is so much like hitting a sweet spot of the time that it's it's like hard to make too much fun of it just because of that because there really was like a clamoring for this type of sort of rap like hard rock uh blend now I was listening to this. It was a song I brought up. It was way back. It wasn't even in the 95 to 98 hour when we were calling our list, but it was from Helmet, uh, unsung by Helmet, like 92 or 93, which I think is kind of like the precursor to this in a little bit. And I think like when I go back and listen to Down, I actually listened to this whole album uh, yesterday, like once it was on the list, just from start to finish, listening to Down a couple of times. I think Helmet, I think unsung and some of that stuff holds up just a little bit better. Like I think it probably has more influence on people today, but it's like, like I said, it's just hard to overstate like how much this was of the time. And it'd be like, you know, you're right. Maybe it's easy to mock now, but like if I'm mock, if I were to mock this now, I'd just be mocking the 1995 me because I was listening to this and everybody was. <laughs> three eleven forever, baby. Happy three eleven day. <laughs> All right. So we may get a little emotional here, Tim. My first uh, below the line pick was from a cult band. Uh, my second one is a different kind of cult band. This is if, the cult was an entire country because we're going to head up north to Canada and we're finally going to talk about the tragically hip in Bob Cajun from July 1998. Left your house this morning Was 
love this song, Tim. I thought you were going to say the Bare Naked Ladies. <laughs> oh, this is the National Band of Canada. The Tragically Hip. I mean, we could, I don't want to do the whole bio because we're sort of the, below the line, but I will say that these guys formed in 1984. They are Gord Downey, Paul Langlais, Bobby Baker, Gord Sinclair, and Johnny Fay. That's right. There are two Gords in the Tragically Hip. <laughs> they played until Gord Downey died in 2017. If you go look up the stats at these guys in Canada, the awards they won, it's like there are lists that take up several Wikipedia pages. I will just say they had nine number one albums. My favorite of those number one albums is 1999's Phantom Power, which included Bob Cajun, which was released a little bit earlier. So it's unbelievably hard to overstate how tied together Canada is with the Tragically Hip. So much so that I really had never heard a Tragically Hip song in my life because Canadians sort of listen to their music and we listen to our music and they don't really cross over much. But this is a really good song. And this kind of falls right into that sort of rootsy rock of the 90s that you like to champion, like a cracker kind of a thing. Like it's in that sort of vein. The difference being, dude, Gord could sing. I didn't know he had pipes. I didn't know he had that kind of vibrato in his voice. Yeah, Gord was really amazing. I mean, uh, it's I love. I love this song so much. I think that this is like, again, the way that Hood is the quintessential fish song for all of their warts. This is the quintessential tragically hip song in that it's really about sort of the everyday life of a person and the stated, you know, the, uh, like, like idea behind the song is that it's about a police officer who really, really struggles with day to day life, but when he's off duty, will go to a significant other's house, which is in Bob Cage in a town that's outside of Toronto and just get away and is sort of able to escape from life for a little while and not have to deal with like the stresses of day-to-day life. He does so in these, like there are these, to me, the most beautiful part is there's these metaphors in it where when he's in Toronto and when he's like sort of dealing with like the work life, there's a line where he says he pulls down the blinds and he says, the sky was dull and hypothetical and fall in one cloud at a time. And then he uses the sky as the comparison. So when he's in Bob Cajun, he's way he says, it was in Bob Cajun, I saw the constellations reveal themselves one star at a time. So it's like you can, it's like you can feel him breathing easier, seeing more clearly when he's like in this other life. And he's really, really like just sort of reckoning with everything. Now, there's all kinds of undertones. There's all kinds of other things going on here, which is that the narrator police officer is kind of struggling with... Uh, like violence and struggling with violence of everyday life, struggling with like at one point in the song, he actually like break up a riot that involves a bunch of like neo-Nazis. When Gord would sing the song in concert, he would say that uh, it was about two gay cops who had fallen in love. Very conspicuously, they never mentioned the gender of either the narrator or the significant other. He would sort of go back and forth about that, but it's like, it's about all these things coming together, but it's set just sort of through the eyes of like just an ordinary kind of everyday guy. How would you compare the Tragically Hip to a band like The Hold Steady? Sort of bands that have this very unique 
knack of storytelling where it's very localized storytelling at times. And they're talking about these big things in life, but they're able to distill it. And they do it in a way that is, you know, both melodic, but also very visceral. Like, how would you compare those two? Yeah, I mean, I I think that the... I, I think the big difference is that the constituency is so much different and like yeah. the hold steady is basically like guys my age who like to wear flannel shirts and go to concerts on Saturday nights. Whereas <laughs> the tragically hips constituency is literally all of Canada. All of I Canada, mean, yeah. like Gord Downey announced but that they had, like to he, wear flannel too. They do. That's true. So, I mean, that's the, the thing I love it. Like Downey announced that he had cancer and then they were going to go on one final tour. And it basically became this like, like national like moment of like celebration slash mourning. And they did a final show. They played 30 songs. It was like three hours long and it was watched by almost 12 million people. That's like a third of Canada. It was basically like the Super Bowl. I mean, like almost exactly a third of the United States watched the, uh, watched the Super Bowl a couple of weeks ago. Uh, I think it's like somehow they're able to speak to a population that is larger than what some like what a band like the hold study is able to do i think the hold study is very sure. targeted at people who sort of and, and it's it, i think it's a good comparison in that they're able to sort of sing songs about people who are like going out to clubs or going out to listen to live music and that there's sort of a bigger meaning to that whereas like the tragically hip are able to sing songs about people who are sort of living their everyday life but somehow brings into existence like all of the you know, all of the ups and downs and everything about just sort of like life in Canada. I mean, just go find Justin Trudeau's press conference after Gord Downey died. It's like, you'll get teared up watching it even if you're not a fan, but it's like, he sort of, he has this moment where he talks about how like Gord was able to talk about like racism and all the war. It's like, he loved Canada, but he didn't just love Canada for all the good stuff. He loved it, you know, warts and all. And he was able to sort of address things like racism and especially sort of the abuses of first nation people in canada and things like that through his songs and bring everybody together in a way uh i mean it's really like i said like i don't appreciate it as much as i probably would like to i've listened to a lot of tragically hip and do think that they're brilliant but uh uh you know it's it there it just it does sort of go beyond and it sort of exists in this world that's you know like that's different than the one that we live in well chris we're gonna change gears from one national icon to another national icon that's right. Earl Simmons. <laughs> DMX. I need to talk about DMX. Especially because 1998 was the year of DMX. At least on Mike's porch where I used to listen to music every day. I've been through mad different faces, like Macy's, to find my way. And now I know that happy days are not far away. If I'm strong enough, I live long enough to see my kids doing something more constructive with the time. This is Slippin' from his late 98 album, Flesh of My Flesh, Blood of My Blood. On the album cover, DMX is covered in blood with his arms outstretched. It's a very evocative image. And I was, what, 14 when I had that album carrying it around. This is one of DMX's more melancholy pieces, but it is a very autobiographical piece. And in the wake of his death, just uh, 2021, it is a very eye-opening piece about what he was going through on a daily basis. 
I mean, talk about someone who had warts and all. Few artists can be more warts and all than than Earl Simmons DMX. Yeah, I mean, I'll be honest. I I didn't really know this one at all, but uh, it it's a really great track. I mean, I know DMX well. I know some of the things we talked about. Uh, Rough Riders Anthem, I guess it was on our sort of medium list for uh, 1998. But uh, I, I mean, you're right. This is really a great track. It's one that sort of, it surprised me. I won't go into too much detail with the DMX story, but he was born in 70 Mount Vernon, New York, terrible childhood was abused physically and emotionally lived on the streets at times, sent to group homes he robbed people, was arrested multiple times, started rapping under the name DMX, taken from the Oberheim DMX drum machine as a teenager. Through the early 90s, was in the underground New York scene, a throwback to MCs like Rock Kim and Big Daddy Kane. He was in the unsigned hype column by The Source. He got signed, released a couple tracks, was dropped by the mid-90s, but then he honed his style into something more gruff, aggressive, street-ready, and influenced by the dogs that he had lived with at times and that he cared for and that he loved but also had a really tough relationship with. So there's a lot of barking in a lot of DMX songs, as we know. Guest spots on classic posse tracks like 24 Hours to Live by Mace, Money, Power, and Respect by The Locks, and 4321 by L.O. Cool J got people talking about him. And these guest spots were all basically in between late 97 and early 98. Def Jam signed him. The debut album It's Dark and Hell is Hot came out in May of 98, debuted at number one on the Billboard Top 200 with three top 10 rap songs right on its heels came the December 98 follow-up. As I mentioned, flush on my flush, blood on my blood. Also number one on the billboard 200. I remember hearing 24 hours to live for the first time and going, who is this guy at the end of this track? Who just sounds incredible. I want to know more about this. And then his album comes out a couple months later. It's dark and hell is hot. You have rough riders anthem. You have get at me dog. You have this really great album. Just like, hitting you in the face over and over again. And he just owned it. He owned 98. And then you get to the end of the year with flesh of my flesh. And this track really serves as this incredible coda to the year where he's really bearing his soul out, talking about all the tough things that he's been through in his life and how he's constantly trying to get better despite falling down over and over again, despite going back to drugs, going back to using, going back to being a criminal and still trying to get better every day for his kids. He's gotten many of them, by the way, for people that he loves in his life. And of course, it doesn't end well in the end for him. Yeah, I mean, I love sort of the the story here that is, I don't even, it's definitely not even apocryphal, but where he uh, he was being sentenced for tax evasion and his lawyer showed the video of this track to the judge. Yeah. Uh, and he apparently ended up getting one year instead of the five years that the prosecutors wanted. Uh, I was thinking about this earlier. It's like, I feel like it's kind of come full circle from the first song with uh, Born Slippy, where it is intentional, I think, right? It's like with the slipping, like there's this idea of, I don't know, falling down a path against your better wills in a way. And mm. uh, it's, you know, like, it's interesting how you can have two tracks that are so, so different in so many ways, but also are kind of trying to capture that. Um, you know, that same kind of overall attitude, uh, regret, if you will, or at least sort of uh, rethinking choices and rethinking like where you are. And like I said, this is good. I'm, I, I am glad you put this one on because I never would have thought of uh, digging this one up to listen to it. But it is uh, uh, it is a great track. Yeah. And DMX in 98 was as big as Biggie in 97, I think, at times and as big as. 
Tupac in 96, you know, he really is sort of the rapper of the moment at this time. And he's the one that bridges sort of between the Biggie and Pac era into a different era that's going to be kind of ruled by Jay-Z and ruled by rappers who maybe are going to tone it down a little bit more, but are going to have more intellectual wordplay. Uh, but DMX sort of serves as that sort of last gasp of, of that old school sort of mafioso style and he's just got his own character that is just so interesting. Just to put a put a pin on DMX, did you ever see there was a, I think Vulture did it or something. It was this graph. They took every rapper's songs, every popular rapper's songs from between like 1990 and 2015 or whatever, and they counted how many words that they said in their songs. <laughs> and so, you know, like, I don't know who was at the top, like someone like Andre 3000 or something was like at the top of the list. Like there were these rappers like common or whatever, who were at the top of the list of like the most words used over the course of their career. Guess who was at the bottom, Chris? <laughs> was it DMX? It was DMX. Yes. Who used the word arf, arf, as much as he used any other word <laughs> in the English language in his songs. But that's why I love him. That's why I love him. He, he was more about, performance and showmanship and character and pure emotion. One of the most emotional rappers ever, like absolutely one of the most emotional rappers ever. He was above that more than he was just like straight up wordplay. And I think that's what sort of, that's what I was attracted to with him. All right. So there we go. We had our four nominees. We had our four, uh, we'll call them below the line picks. So uh, four of those tracks are going to show up on the ballot after we do our 1999 episode. So they will be joining the songs that, uh, uh, I guess they'll, they'll be joining the songs that are already that have carried over from our result last result show, which you haven't heard yet. Plus the ones we're nominating in 1999. Uh, what are the new nominees, Tim? Born Slippy, Nux by Underworld, Hypnotized by the Notorious B.I.G., Let Down by Radiohead, and Flagpole Sitta by Harvey Danger. And so again, March 19th, 2023, you will get to vote for those songs, songs from 99, songs from years previous that got to stay on the ballot, they'll be on the ballot at hallofsongs.com. I also should mention a listener, Joe. He he wanted to, he wanted to talk he, he was hoping we could talk about Steve Earle. Um Ooh. What do you, do you want to say a word or two about Steve Earle? I mean, great Americana artist. He had been around since what, the very early 80s, even the late 70s he was kind of hanging around. And comes into his own in the 80s, but in the 90s, he has some great albums. He talked about the album Al Corazon from 1997, which is uh, one of his best, definitely. Yeah, I'd have to sort of get the whole, uh, you know, I'd look at, I haven't thought about the whole discography. I mean, I know, like, he had Copperhead Road, uh, which was just an absolutely epic album in the late 80s. And then he had uh, uh, Guitar Town. Well, I guess it was the reverse yeah, Guitar okay. Town, I think was Guitar his Town debut, was the right? Yeah, it was. And that yeah. sort of broke up. But yeah, no, El Corazon, like, that was 97. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, and then I guess we're getting close to the pace tra Transcendental Blues. I mean, he's just, a, he has had just an incredibly interesting career between his, you know, his music. Uh, he's written openly about, you know, a theme here now, I guess, with uh, some of the things, but his struggles with drugs and alcohol. Uh, and sort of been really open about that in ways that I think a lot of people were not necessarily at the time, particularly in sort of the country music world, uh, or if you want to call it that, the alt country, outlaw country world. 
uh, and is, you know, and then went on to be an, an actor and been, became sort of a bigger star in a lot of ways. Yeah. You know, I mean, he's in The Wire and he's sort of a, you know, an epic, uh, uh, it's a, you know, an epic sort of bigger star than that. So, yeah, I actually had sort of had on my list the song Copperhead Road back in 88. And I wasn't sure, I guess, where it kind of fit in because it was, that was one of those that in 1988 it came out, it was, it wasn't popular in the same way. You know, it wasn't like necessarily like a, it's one that reminds me a little bit of Big Star where like 10 years later, everybody was talking about it as an influence, but it wasn't necessarily in and of itself this like uh, hit at the time. So, but yeah, I mean, Steve Rowe is just absolutely an incredible talent. He's like, I don't know. There, there are these artists that in my world, I've had a hard time fitting in in Hall of Songs because of this sort of singer songwriter world. And he is probably the, third in a chain of three, which would involve uh, Towns Van Zant, Chris Christopherson, and then Steve Earle. Uh, all absolutely brilliant, brilliant songwriters, and I'm not sure necessarily that there's one that sort of hovers above the best uh, or hovers above the rest in a way that like means like we've got to nominate it. Speaking of songwriters, great songwriters who we have not nominated, and I just why not mention this person because I just thought about it. Burt Bacharach died recently, um, we had, we went back and forth a whole lot on walk on by as a nominee from way back, what, 1964, I believe. I mean, what an outsized, you know, uh, influence he's had on music. His style of writing is very unique, very his own. And it was at a time when music was changing in so many different ways. And he was kind of taken from the Brill building a little bit, taking from the girl group thing a little bit, taking from even the British invasion a little bit and creating something all his own and doing it in his own very signature way. Great songwriter. And uh, I still wish we put one of his songs in the nominee list, but I guess he's another one that kind of, to me feels a little bit sort of off the hall of song sort of spotlight for me. I will say I, I was listening to the episode. Uh, it was a Chris Malamphy episode on, uh, sort of these uh, like on, on a few sort of divas and he talked a lot about Dion Warwick and I regretted not doing walk on by which I will oh, say for the listeners you, you had on the list and I said and my thought at the time was that it was it was almost more sort of like some of the ones we had talked about with like Tony Bennett and Frank Sinatra that it existed a little bit it was hard to sort of expand into that sort of world. I now think in re-listening to it, I was wrong on that one, but it wasn't a case of not thinking it was great. Uh, it was really a case of just sort of where the fit was, but yeah, I'm with you. It's like, I mean, Backrack is one of those, like it, he's hard for what we've sort of talked about. Cause he doesn't necessarily fit into the, the rock music world, you know, the, that sort of that's FM dial, uh, type music, but he's just such a, you know, in some ways he's bigger than that. In some ways he crosses over, uh, you know, he's worked with people like Elvis Costello and some others that we have talked about on here, even if we haven't nominated a bunch of stuff. So yeah, I mean, just an absolute Titan of music and somebody who, uh, uh, has played such a, a role, like, like you said, going back almost to the beginning of hall of songs, like not quite yeah. probably to 1951, but pretty close. Yep. Yep. All right. Well, let's wrap it up then. That's it for the Veterans Committee episode of Hall of Songs. We will come back at you with a results show from our 44th election, which is the most recent one that has songs from 98 on it, plus songs from the past. That episode will be on the 17th of March. Then we will have our 1999 episode on 
the 19th of March. And then after that, we're going to do a really special bonus episode where we're going to go behind the scenes of Hall of Songs and show you what it's like to come up with a list of nominees. That'll be coming up later on in the month. All right, Chris, who do we thank for things? Uh, we have to thank uh, Stock Music Media for our uh, theme song. We're approaching the end of a decade, so I don't know if we'll get a new theme song or not. Uh, if you know, if he's willing to, to do that, we also have to thank uh, Aaron Delashmet for our guitar pick plaques and our logo work. I get to get back on him about that. Like I said on our last episode, he's been very busy with uh, you know real life non Hall of Songs things, but uh, but still, thank you for all of the guitar pick plaques that exist and our logo, which appears on all of the apps that we were talking about earlier. Not as if Aaron has some sort of job that requires him to be very alert and awake all the time. And a lot of people's lives are in his hands. It's not like he has a job like that anyways. True. <laughs> yeah. All right. That's it. Thank you for listening. We'll be back again on March the 17th. Until then, for Hall of Songs, I'm Tim. I'm Chris. Could really be wrong. Oh, my. Oh, my. Oh, my. Oh, my. Oh, my.